Last time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. We've been representing Bob since, well, I first uh, met him in the jail in Pennsylvania in November of 2001, right after he'd been arrested. Rather spectacular. Shoplifting a chicken salad sandwich, a Wall Street Journal, and a Band-Aid. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. He did find her body shortly after someone had shot her in the back of the head. He was coming to visit her. When Bob showed up and found her dead, he panicked. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He's run away all his life. I want to talk about the elephant in the room, Bob's dismemberment of Morris Black's life. Bob spent hours and hours dismembering Morris Black's body. Let's talk about separating that evidence from the evidence, whatever it is, about Susan Berman's death, because that's what really is before you. That's the only thing you can decide. Bob fully accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durst. <laughs> for dismembering Black It's just a slip of the tongue, but unlike his earlier missteps, it lands like an anvil in the courtroom. Dick DeGaron said Bob accepted responsibility for dismembering Kathy Durst. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's part of his makeup. There's two sides to the story. Bob Durst is gonna testify. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's 1.30 in the afternoon on the first and only day of the defense's opening statements. Their presentation has mostly been a low-tech affair with cue cards, flip charts, and the occasional still image slide on the TV screen. However, before lunch, Dick DeGaron attempted to play a computer animation depicting Durst's fatal altercation with Morris Black. That effort was plagued by technical difficulties. First, the video was frozen. Then, some glitch made the image erratically flash off and on. In total, the defense attempted to fix the video for less than three minutes, but to the members of the press and the gallery, it felt like an eternity. While the prosecution had its share of technical issues, the cumulative power of the wealth of evidence that they presented through that technology made a deep impact on court observers. By contrast, the awkwardness with which DeGaron handled his tech problems created something ominous to the prospects of the defense team. The collective response to the snafus seemed not so much saturated with irritation as it seemed to elicit pity. At one point, DeGaron's co-counsel quipped, quote, this is why I use chalkboards, end quote. 
Ultimately, the video was abandoned with the intention to fix it over the break. Now we've returned and the video is back on the screen. Daguerrean appears confident. And by the way, that continuous rattling that you hear in the background is the sound of the court reporter typing her transcription of Daguerrean's statement. So what you're going to see now is a computer animation. First, Mr. Lewin showed you. I'm going to narrate it as to what the evidence would show. Bob comes, he sees Morris as he is suspected because he heard the TV. So he goes directly to where... I'm sorry, one of the technicalities has not been fixed. Uh, this is not the screen. One of the court TV screens isn't playing the video. Uh, we're going to have to do it again. What, why is that? It's got to turn it on. Can we start it over? So the jurors were confused about yeah. it. It's on. Yeah, it's off. Okay. Starting from the beginning, Bob hears a television. He opens the door. He sees Morris. He suspects that Morris has gotten the gun. The video on the court TV is now frozen. Don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm pointing over here, and you should be looking here, I guess. But whatever. It should be moving. At this point, it feels like the entire courtroom is chiming in with advice like a family collectively trying to fix the remote. Turn it on and off, change the batteries, press input. All suggestions seem to be welcome. Okay, well, it was playing on that. How was your chance? Turn this one off and maybe it'll play on one. The defense closes the video on their laptop, revealing a desktop background of a rocky shore at sunset. The video is rebooted at last. It plays. There he goes. All right. So he sees Bob. Bob, he sees Morris, Morris sitting at the table. He goes directly to the oven where he had it hidden. It's not there. He turns around and starts toward Morris. Where's the gun? Morris comes up with a gun. He points it and they fall. And if you see, Bob had his hand on Morris's hand, which had the gun in its hand. Morris had his finger on the trigger. Now, you see where the blood spatter comes up and it hits the wall. The next uh, part of the animation is shows a diagram of the blood spatter. It's the same animation that the defense used in the Galveston trial, and it's familiar to this jury as well. John Lewin played a shortened version during his opening, one that did not include the blood spatter. The people intend to counter that the blood spatter does not align with Durst's version of events. With the animation out of the way, Daguerre turns his attention to the grotesque aftermath of Morris Black's death. Okay, let's talk about the dismemberment. The elephant in the room. There's Morris. Dead. No question. Blood around his head. Not moving. And Bob, remember, he's going to testify sits down on the bed and puts his face in his hand. He didn't know how long he sat there. It could have been minutes, it could have been hours. He didn't know what to do. He went to a nearby liquor store and he bought a bottle of Jack Daniels. He went walking on the seawall with his, with his weed, smoking weed, drinking whiskey, trying to figure out what to do. He wanted to just run away, but Here's, here was his dilemma. He had rented this cheap apartment in the name of a woman dressed like a mute woman. And he was on the lam, even though there was no one chasing him, from New York, 
where Janine Pirro had opened her new investigation. There had been brutal stories in the New York. <laughs> there was a dead man on the floor of his apartment, and that man had been shot with his gun. And he decided that the police would never believe him. So he decided that he had to get rid of the body. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's terrible. And he goes about the grizzly work of dismembering Morris Black's body. DeGuerin paints Robert's choice to saw the limbs off Morris Black's corpse as one of desperation. After staring at the body and wringing his hands, he self-medicated with alcohol and marijuana and then set about the task in a dissociative state. DeGuerin is offering a narrative for who Robert Durst is that contrasts sharply from the image painted by John Lewin a few days earlier. Now, as you listen to Mr. Durst's voice, the evidence is going to demonstrate, as he's describing this, it's as if he's constructing a shed or building something in the backyard. You don't hear any remorse. You don't hear any sorrow. You don't hear any pain. You don't hear any regret. Lewin then played a clip of an interview with Durst for the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. I went back and, and I realized I couldn't lift it. I couldn't drag it out. I was going to have to dis dismember it. And then I went to Chalmers Hardware Store. Anyway, I went and bought a bow saw, and I got a bunch of garbage bags and stuff like that, and went back to, to, to the house. And um, I'm sure I got more stoned and more drunk, and I dismembered the corpse, primarily with the ax, but some with the bow saw and I think another saw that Morris Black had. Took the body parts, and put any, everything else there that was bloody, whatever it was, that I ended up cleaning up the place with, put them in the garbage bags. DeGuerin doesn't shy away from the dismemberment. He tells the jury that during the trial, they will see graphic photos of the severed limbs. You're gonna see pictures. They're gonna be worse than that one that Mr. Lewin left on the screen uh, yesterday afternoon. One thing when you're looking at them, if you can, and I know it's that hard to look at, is they tell how amateurish the dismemberment was because he cut across the bones. The description of corporal mutilation is far from flattering for Durst, but DeGuerin uses it to emphasize that the act was clumsy. The assertion is that Robert didn't know what he was doing because this was his very first time dismembering a body. Durst's inexperience is an important point for the defense to make because in his opening statement, John Lewin implied that Durst may have dismembered his wife, Kathy. Mr. Durst was also um, asked about the manner in which he had dismembered the body. And he denied that it took any special experience. He, the way that he describes it, though, as you listen to him, um, He's very technical. Did you listen to what he has to say? John Lewin then played audio from his interview with Durst in New Orleans. Somebody knew how to cut the joints. You see, I don't know that. Subsequently, I've been told um, that a surgeon would, would cut up a body the same way you you do a chicken. You go into the joint and, and you cut around the joint to get rid of all the ligaments and then the thing comes out. You're not gonna go and try to cut through the goddamn bone like right. I did, which was hard. 
Um, well, you, you, you did a you did a, a pretty good job. Would you agree, Bob, that somebody who could dismember somebody like that, you can understand why we would suspect you of having yeah, killed. Yeah, that's you. what Kathy, mother, and Gilberti, and I'm sure the other ones think. I did yeah. to Kathy. Now the evidence to demonstrate that. I couldn't get out even my sentence. All that I said was, why would we would suspect you to kill? And Mr. Durst then had the sentence for me. He brought up Kathy. He brought up the dismemberment. He brought up people's suspicions. DeGaron counters Lewin's narrative by reprising a grimly mundane metaphor that he used in his arguments in the Texas trial and that we just heard Durst use in his New Orleans interview with Lewin. He saw it across the guy bones and the arm bones, instead of cutting around the joints as you would if you were going to cut up a chicken to cook it, or if, 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 if you have turkey for Thanksgiving and you, and you carve that turkey, you, you always go around the joints. It was just, it was crazy. Having dealt with Morris Black's dismemberment, DeGuerin directs the jury to consider the garbage bags that Durst discarded in the dumpster behind his apartment. Everything they needed to, to tie Bob Durst in those bags, including um, Morris Black's uh, eviction notice, including a receipt in Bob Durst's name from a nearby optometrist where he was to go pick up some glasses in about a week, uh, and, and including the gun. The gun was there, and this is so telling. This is what the evidence is going to show. In those bags, was the gun itself, which was registered to Bob, which he bought at Pas in Pasadena, Texas at a gun store in his name, and a single expended 22 cartridge. One shot and two clips. The clip is the part that goes in the bottom of the gun and has uh, a number of shells in it. One clip was filled to capacity. The other clip had one less shell. It's right there. It's all there unplanned. That's what we think the evidence will show you. It was unplanned. It was spur of the moment. According to DeGuerin, the fact that Durst left behind so much substantial evidence is proof that the incident was not premeditated. A murderer with a plan wouldn't be so sloppy. DeGuerin tells the jury that after Durst committed the hasty act, he was arrested and released on bail. And again he ran. And again he ran. He was running. He had Morris Black's identification, his driver's license. He rented a, a cheap uh, rent-a-wreck car and began an odyssey of a month and a half across the eastern part of the United States and ended up uh, near his, where he went to school, Lehigh, in Pennsylvania. 
and he was arrested again, shoplifting a chicken sandwich with $400 in his pocket. He asked to get to his car. He'll tell you what he wanted to do was kill himself rather than be arrested. Police didn't let him get to his car. He had loaded guns in the car. You'll hear all that evidence. He had decided that he was going to kill himself, and he had talked to Debbie about it. He even had a plot to to kill himself in Douglas's driveway. DeGuerin references a jailhouse call from Durst to his wife, Deborah Chariton. DeGuerin does not play the call that he references, and so the gallery and the jurors are left to presume that it is one of the calls that John Lewin played in his opening. In one of those calls, Lewin argued, Durst was telling Deborah that he planned to kill his brother, Douglas. We were talking, you were telling me about what your life has been like and what you were thinking. Yeah, my, 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 my Don't plans, say it. yeah. Okay. Definitely not going to say okay, it. Okay, but you told me what your plans were, well, and I told you that I knew, I had a feeling, I suspected. Remember? You know, I certainly screwed it up, didn't I? Well, never mind that. But if I suspected, he too suspected. I, 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 I think I left this out. Did I tell you that I went to his Kona house while I was in Danbury? Uh, I think I read that you did, but I didn't. I don't remember if you told me. This is Mr. Durr's talking to his wife. The evidence is going to demonstrate the person they're talking about is Douglas Durr's. The plan they're talking about is Bob Durr's killing him. Without hearing that call again during DeGuerin's opening, the courtroom listeners were left to wonder whether the idea that Durst was contemplating suicide was a plausible interpretation of the evidence. Nevertheless, DeGuerin weaves the suicidal interpretation into his portrayal of the defendant as a deeply troubled and self-destructive man. Durst may be heir to a vast fortune, but he's burdened by a dark past and plagued by the cruel judgment of public opinion. As DeGuerin transitions from offering an explanation for Durst's behavior after his acquittal in the Texas trial to his reasons for participating in the film that became The Jinx, he expands on the theme of Durst's self-destructiveness with a story from Durst's childhood. I want to talk now about uh, the Jinx and Bob's uh, life before that that somehow, in some way, explains Bob's tendency to run in the face of problems. Bob was born into wealth and privilege didn't choose it, but he lost. When he was seven years old, his father brought him to the window of their home. His mother was on the roof in her nightgown. Governor, this is irrelevant information. Oh. I believe that Mr. Lewin discussed this. No. Oh. So his, his father brought him to the window, probably to discourage her from jumping if she jumped or whether she fell. But what we do know, what the facts are absolutely certain about is that she fell off of the roof of their home and was killed. Bob was seven. His siblings were all much younger. And his troubles really started then. He started running away. He ran away from camp. He ran away from school. He ran away from home. Seymour, his father, became distant. He was raised by nannies. He blamed his father for his mother's death. DeGuerin tells the jury that Robert also had a contentious relationship with his brother Douglas, although it was far from homicidal. 
According to the defense, it was this bitter sibling rivalry that drove Robert to participate in the jinx. Bob heard that Douglas, his brother, who had taken over the Durst organization, was threatening to sue Jarecki over this movie because it, it portrayed Seymour Durst as a pretty bad guy. And so he heard that Douglas was going to sue Jarecki, and Bob figured, well, if Douglas doesn't like him, I'll like him. Anything that Douglas liked, Bob didn't like, and vice versa. And so he contacted Jarecki. Prosecutors already told you about how that's going to be evident. And then he sat down for interviews. A number of real news organizations had contacted him and wanted to do a story, wanted to interview him. He turned them all down for a movie producer, not a documentarian. And he trusted <clears throat> Jarecki to do a fair job of telling his story. Bob, Bob was, everywhere he went, people would look at him funny. And they, he, he heard the whispers, he saw the, the elbows, and he saw how he was treated. Not surprising given the verdict in Galveston, but still, he wanted to explain himself, how he'd been under suspicion for, by then, 30 years. <coughs> And so he did some interviews that were very ill-advised because they were designed to be edited to make him look terrible. And an editor can make Mother Teresa look better. An editor can turn night into day. He didn't realize it. And that's what happened with the jinx. DeGaron explains that after the jinx aired, Durst felt that he had been tried in the court of public opinion and feared that no one would believe his story, especially not the police. And so, DeGuerin says, Durst did what he always does. He ran, this time to New Orleans, where he was tracked down by the police and arrested. So he was put in jail. He called his lawyers late that evening. He was put in the Orleans Parish Prison, a place that's worse than the L.A. County Jail. He'd been up all day and all night. He was in, put in a cold cell by himself, no clothes. And about four or five o'clock that morning, the prosecutor and several detectives took him out and put him in a warm room, gave him warm clothes, coffee, and started talking to him. Bob was being cagey even then. He didn't want to go back to that cold cell. He wanted to stay out there where they gave him coffee and a blanket and, and uh, treated him with respect. And he was interrogated. Mr. Lewin takes a position that the evidence will show that that was a confession. You'll have the opportunity to make your own mind up about whether that was a confession. And we believe the evidence will show it wasn't a confession at all. It was Bob trying to play them. John Lewin presented several parts of his interview with Durst in his opening statement. But DeGuerin seems to reference one particular moment in the New Orleans interview that came at the end of their session. Now, at the end of the interview, Durst, in essence, confessed to Kathy and Susan's murders by admitting that he had details that he had not yet provided. So as you're listening, what the evidence will show is that Mr. Durst is being pressed to tell the truth, to say what he knows. Mr. Durst's response is not going to be, how can I tell you anything? I don't know anything. I'm not involved in this. That's not what he's going to say. He's going to give an answer 
that only somebody who is responsible, who knows what happened, would respond that way. So I would like to talk to you when you come back from court today. That's going to be up to you what you do. I don't know whether there'll be a lawyer there today. I don't know what that lawyer is going to tell you. If, He's going to tell me to shut my mouth, of course. Well, and, and, then, and this is what I'll tell you. You have every right to listen to your lawyer and to do what your lawyer says. We get back is I want to find out what is it that we can discuss where I can get the truth about some of the things that you've said you, you couldn't really answer for me. But you, you have told me, correct, that there is, you know what I want, correct? Yes, you'd like some details from me if I knew yes. about where Kathy's body is. And about what happened to Susan. Those and about what happened. Okay, and, and you would agree that you're in the position, if you want, to tell me more than you have so far. about that, I'm not about to go that far. Okay, but, well, well, but wait a minute, because you're telling me, though, that I want to understand when you're saying, tell me what, what Well, you asked me I what I thought you wanted to hear. I think what you wanted to hear is, what, what did you do with Kathy? Right. And I think you want me to go through details of, of, of Susan. I do. Okay, so now, what would I ask for? Tell me. If I tell you those things, I'm pleading guilty. Okay. And I'm pleading guilty, I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles, to California, and doing my time. Now that exchange, the evidence will show is crucially important because Bob Durst, was admitting that he had the answers to those questions. Answers he could only have if, in fact, he was the killer. DeGuerin says that the defense will offer evidence that Durst was not confessing here, but rather, quote, playing the prosecutors, end quote. Moving on from Durst's alleged confession, Dick DeGuerin draws the jury's attention to two pictures. The first is of Robert, Susan, and Kathy, arm in arm, smiling for the camera. The second is Morris Black's snarl-lipped mugshot. Where does that leave us? On the screen is a picture that you've seen several times, and it's a picture of a happy Bob Durst, and a happy Susan Berman, and a happy Kathy Durst. And on the right side is a picture of Morris Black. The difference in those two cases, the evidence will show, is as different as those two pictures are. But the evidence, again, will show you that is that there is no evidence to connect the death of Morris Black to the disappearance of Kathy Durst, and more importantly, to the only thing that you can decide in this case, whether Bob Durst is guilty of killing Susan Berman and I end it the way I started. Bob Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he doesn't know who did. Thank you. Dick DeGuerin strolls back to the defense table and gives Robert Durst a reassuring pat on the shoulder. Durst is alert, but his expression is dour. His deep-set eyes are fixed ahead as Dick DeGuerin's co-counsel, David Chesnoff, takes the podium. DeGuerin has established the defense's thesis. Robert Durst did not kill Susan Berman, and he does not know who did. 
but it will be left to David Chesnoff to address the lingering questions in observers and presumably the jurors' minds. If Robert Durst didn't kill Kathy, then why do so many of Susan's friends remember her saying that Durst killed his first wife? If he didn't kill Susan, how will the defense explain Nick Chavin's testimony that Bob confessed the murder to him? And then why did he write a note to the police to alert them to her body and then lie about having written it? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. On the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, my name is David Chesnoff. It's important to remember that Bob is only charged with Susan Berman's murder. The evidence will show that this case is based on false memories, a profound misunderstanding of who Bob is, and a Hollywood production called The Jinx. Yes, Bob found the body of Susan Berman on December 23, 2000, and he notified police of the body as he wrote what the prosecution calls the cadaver note. No fingernail scrapings were done on Susan to identify a possible attacker. No evidence is evidence. No evidence is evidence. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Taracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Taracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.